All right, wait, wait. I got it. I got the great question. Okay. <laughs> this is great. All right, is anyone in this room going to be dead before next year? No. No, don't ask questions like that. She's really scared. No. You guys, Susan is right. No more stupid questions, okay? You're ruining everything. Now you just ask the spirit who it is and what it wants. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. It's been in existence, more or less, different sites, but I've been writing film reviews online at least since 1996. You can read all of my written work there at Quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net is where to go. While you're there, I strongly encourage you, if you like this show, you'll probably also like my other show called To the 90s and Beyond. And of course, it is covering films of the 1990s primarily, although I do cover more recent movies that will be inspired in some form or fashion by the films that I cover here on this show, as well as the 90s show. To the 90s and Beyond, check the link at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the third part of this four-part series, looking at films of the 1980s well the first one was 1979 but you get the gist this one comes out from 1983 it is called Amityville 3D Amityville 3D is a PG rated film unlike the previous two which were R rated this one has violence, scary images and mild language the runtime, well it's about an hour and 33 minutes if you see it in its theatrical cut other cuts may vary depending on your country as well as whether you're watching it on television or not Tony Roberts, Tess Harper, Candy Clark, Robert Joy, and some pretty early work here from Lori Laughlin and Meg Ryan. John Harkins and Neil Barry round out the main cast. Richard Fleischer is the director. The screenplay credited to William Wales, which happens to be a pseudonym for David Ambrose. Now, after the success of 1979's The Amityville Horror, American International Pictures, they were soon acquired by Filmways. They bought the rights to Hans Holzer's book called Murder in Amityville, which was published in 1979. They wanted this to be a potential cinematic follow-up to the Amityville horror. And Holzer's book relates the real-life murders that occurred in 1974 that involved Ronald Butch DeFeo. He shot and murdered his parents and his four siblings in their respective beds within the family home. And his defense claim was that he was under demonic influence that caused him to do these things. As the book relates events that were a matter of public record, prior to the Lutz family experience that we came to know in the Amityville Horror Filmways, they determined that they need not worry about securing any kind of deal with the Lutzes or anyone else. In 1981, film producer Dino De Laurentiis, he also made a deal with Filmways. He wanted to do a sequel story that would contain completely fictional characters who move into the Amityville home. Dino commissioned British novelist and playwright David Ambrose to script this new story, then entitled Death in Amityville. Dino's tentative choice for the director was the Legend of Hell House director John Huff, he was going to take charge. Then he changed his mind to Hungarian-born Canadian director George Katzender, with a production start date, at least at that time, slotted for September of 1981. But 
production paused, Dino started working with Filmways to produce their prequel concept that they were having a hard time getting off the ground. He was going to do that one first, and that resulted in the 1982 release that I talked about on the previous episode, Amityville 2, The Possession. Now, after Amityville 2's release, Death in Amityville was quickly announced as the third Amityville film with a new release date of August 1983. But it wasn't going to be called Death in Amityville because with a new wave of 3D genre films filling the theaters in the prior two years, Dino wanted to ride this wave into his own 3D movie. And this would allow him to cleverly sidestep the sequel legalities of the title while still keeping it a presumptive follow-up in the mind of the public by calling it Amityville 3D. Amityville 3D was fast-tracked. Dino was hoping to ride the coattails, not only of the 3D craze at the time, but also of Poltergeist that came out in 1982. This was a film Dino really wanted to capitalize on. He thought that he had a similar property. So he ordered revisions so plagiaristic of the Poltergeist property that David Ambrose, the screenwriter for Death in Amityville, he opted to use a pseudonym for the subsequent script revisions. William Wales, maybe it was commemorating the birth in 1982 of William, the son of the Prince and Princess of Wales, Charles and Diana. The poltergeist elements that were introduced into Death in Amityville, those included a psychic research team, there was a daughter that was going to need rescuing, there was a nasty looking demon on the other side of this portal to contend with, as well as a PG rating, very much like Poltergeist, even though the previous Amityville films were R-rated entries. This film would mention the DeFeo murders by name, although many people who are watching this that don't know that this was not going to be a sequel, presuming it was a sequel, we learned in Amityville 2 that the name of the family that was slaughtered by the eldest boy with a shotgun, that was the Mantellis in the film. It was changed from the DeFeos. The Lutz family they're not even referred to at all in this film, except in a blanket statement about crazy things that happened to the house's prior residence. For legal reasons, though, the film does have the disclaimer, this picture is not a sequel on it. Script changes did delay the beginning of filming for several weeks, and the release date eventually moved up from August of 1983 to October 14th. They were hoping to capitalize at that time on the horror movie interest, naturally, that comes about prior to Halloween. In the completed script for Amityville 3D, John Baxter, he's a recently divorced journalist who's working for this investigative magazine called Reveal. If you read the novelization or if you read any of the scripts, that magazine is called Witness, but for some reason changed to Reveal for the movie. John Baxter's latest assignment is to expose this seance scam that's operating within that infamous abandoned Amityville home on Long Island, New York. Afterward, Baxter finds that the house is immensely affordable. It has a sordid history of terrible things happening to those who've been inside, so he could get it for a song. And Baxter, apparently needing to find a new place because he had just divorced his wife. This one has 14 rooms covering three floors. Hey, perfect for a newly divorced bachelor to take residence in. He moves into the house. He's certain all of these prior calamities were coincidences. They were delusions or just straight-up hoaxes. The bottomless pit in the basement, others claim that's a portal to hell. Well, that's just an abandoned well. It has plenty of space for himself, as well as his teenage daughter when she comes to visit, as well as solitude for writing the great American novel that he's been talking about doing for years. 
Others around him soon began to experience strange events, and they implore John to leave. But he won't. He's convinced that the house's reputation is causing mass hysteria among all of his associates. Unfortunately, with his daughter staying with him on occasion, John is going to soon discover that being wrong might just be dead wrong. More to the story than that, not a lot more, but you get the drift of what this film is going to be about, I'm sure. Now, Dino De Laurentiis ultimately selected Richard Fleischer to direct Amityville 3D. Fleischer had worked with Dino before for Barabbas in 1961, Mandingo in 1975, Amityville 3D. This would be the first of four consecutive films that Fleischer directed for Dino De Laurentiis. Conan the Destroyer, Red Sonja, and Million Dollar Mystery followed this. Those four that he did for Dino, they would be the final four films that he did in his career. Now, Fleischer came in with experience directing 3D films. He had already helmed a movie called Arena that came out in 1953. Back then, the 3D technology was a little different. Arena required two cameras to film. It also required two projectors to display in the theaters, whereas the Aeroflex technology of Amityville 3D only required one camera to film and one projector to show it. Fleischer hearkened back to those days of 1950s chillers. He was going to try here a more classical approach to his haunted house flick in its look and its sound and its feel, really counter-programming to the slasher movie vibe that dominated so much horror in the early 1980s. Now, as Dino wanted this to go very quickly from production to screen, many of the main actors were signed on without having to do any auditions at all. Woody Allen film regular Tony Roberts, he got the lead role of John Baxter. Some viewers today, you know, if you're watching this, you may think that Roberts uncannily resembles the offspring of George W. Bush and maybe Get Smart Don Adams if they were doing an impression of Humphrey Bogart or something. Baxter is said to be very loosely based, though, on Stephen Kaplan, who is a, a parapsychologist who came out against George Lutz. He claimed that his Amityville horror story was a complete fraud. The difference, though, is that Kaplan actually believed in the supernatural, whereas Baxter in this film absolutely does not. Robert Joy, who plays Elliot West, he's the head of the psychic research team brought in to investigate. He also skipped auditioning for the film. He had recently appeared in another De Laurentiis production called Ragtime. Joy took the job because, well, he needed the money. But he also felt that the screenplay did have some clever twists, and he looked forward to participating. In the end, though, he felt that a lot of that didn't really translate to the screen as he saw it. He was disappointed with the results of Amityville 3D, especially the last half he deemed... This really was a ripoff of Poltergeist in many ways. Christine Ebersol, she was initially cast in the role of John Baxter's ex-wife, Nancy. She had already been fitted for wardrobe. She came in, they did some makeups on her, all of that in pre-production. But then during that time, she was offered a more prestigious role. She was going to play Katerina Cavalieri in Amadeus. Now, as Amadeus was immediately about to shoot, Ebersol was faced with a very difficult decision because she was broke and Amityville paid significantly more than what they were offering for Amadeus. Ultimately, she opted for Amadeus because she thought it had many more artistic qualities and she believed in never doing anything strictly for the money. Ebersol was immediately replaced by Tess Harper. Tess Harper also took the money because she was broke. We're getting a common theme here with a lot of people that appear in these kinds of movies, she needed to pay the rent pretty badly. Now, Harper had already shot Tender Mercies, which would become a breakthrough performance, but not yet because it hadn't paid her more than scale, and it also took 14 months from the time they finished shooting before it came out. That's two months after getting hired to do Amityville. 
viewers today may enjoy seeing some of the early work done by those later famous actresses I mentioned earlier. Lori Loughlin, who would be one of the main stars of the very popular late 1980s, early 1990s sitcom on television, Full House, and also soon to be the rom-com queen for several years, Meg Ryan. For Laughlin, she was a regular on the TV soap called The Edge of Night. Amityville 3D represented her first feature film. Here she would be playing John Baxter's daughter, Susan. Meg Ryan, she was appearing on a different soap opera, As the World Turns. She would be playing Susan's best friend, Lisa. Fleischer later claimed in interviews when Meg Ryan really took off that he cast Ryan the moment he saw her because she had undeniable star presence that he saw within her. Ryan says... Amityville 3D really didn't do much for her career, but it did do a lot for the entertainment value of her friends. Exteriors were filmed for 10 days at the same house as the first two features in Toms River, New Jersey. Other locations were not too far off in the town, although it was not the original Long Island home purportedly on demonically possessed land, the Toms River home used for the three Amityville movies was scheduled to be relocated shortly after the shoot. The infamous quarter moon windows in the front, at least, they were already replaced because there were too many intruders and really annoying people coming to take pictures and ask questions. Most exterior shots used the rear windows where the river entrance and the back deck were located, and those windows had not yet been replaced. As the location of the house was going to be going away, they determined that this entry in the Amityville series should be the last one using this house, which is why at the end of this film, it is basically destroyed. Now, for makeup duties, Dino courted Jeff Goodwin. He was performing makeup for this other 3D film at the time called Rottweiler, also known as Dogs of Hell. That was being filmed in North Carolina, which was where Dino De Laurentiis was building his new studios, at least soon to build them. Goodwin did turn down Amityville 3D because he felt he wasn't yet quite skilled enough to handle the kind of full-body creature effects that were called for in this film. He did accept working with Dino, though, the next year when he was asked to do Cat's Eye, and that began an impressive run of work for Goodwin doing makeup for Delamance's films in 1985 and 1986. Now, in Goodwin's stead, Dino did bring back Dick Smith protege Jean Caglione, if that sounds familiar. He did the makeup for Amityville 2. Caglione crafted a very articulated demon for the finale, a more elaborate full-body suit version of the one that he designed for the main nemesis in Amityville 2. This was designed to display a number of facial expressions. Caglione volunteered, actually, to be the actor inside the suit for the movie because he wanted to know what it was like for the actors that he did makeup on, what they had to go through. Ultimately, though, he was disappointed. A lot of the demon's screen time that was shot was greatly reduced in the final cut. You really don't see it on the screen for very long. Visual effects were done by Gary Playtech, who used the gig as an excuse to leave Industrial Light and Magic, and he was going to form a new company in San Rafael, California, called Jex Effects, J-E-X, known later for their work on the Look Who's Talking movies. Playtech and his team did the floating spirit visuals, they did some of the housefly appearances in the film, and also some of the goings-on that we see within the deep well in the basement. It kind of comes to life and it starts bubbling over and all kinds of crazy things start coming out of it. Playtech originally had been scheduled for just 10 effects shots at a modest budget of $250,000, but by the end of the production, they had really upped that to 32 shots and around $500,000. To simulate severe cold within the house, Candy Clark, who plays Melanie, the photographer and the assistant of John Baxter in this film, 
She had to keep a, a very small box that had holes in it, and it was full of dry ice. She had to keep it in her mouth so that it looked like condensation was emanating for her breath in the cold. A simulated cold blast hitting her right square in the face and upper torso, that was done with hot wax and glitter. It was very uncomfortable for Clark because the wax was starting to harden through successive takes, and the glitter felt like sand as it pelted her in the face. After the day's shoot, Clark struggled to get the wax out of her hair. She had to wash it over 20 times for like two and a half hours with all kinds of different cleaning products that she could find around the house, hoping that at least one of them was going to get some of this wax out. She says that a Tide, a laundry detergent, seemed to work the best. For a scene where Melanie's car erupts into flames, Clark wanted to perform the stunt herself, but... Fleischer insisted on a stunt double because of the risks involved. Clark found watching the stunt double do this stunt, it was so unnerving to see the stunt woman's petroleum jelly-coated arm on fire for what seemed to be a very long time that Clark was relieved she didn't go through with it. Fleischer did want footage of Clark, though, inside the flaming car, although she was not as close to the flames as it would appear when you're watching this film. Clark's body was covered with flame retardant, except for her hair, which she had to be careful of. But when she started screaming in terror, her acting was so convincing that the cameraman shooting this, he started to grow panicked that she was really in pain. And he wondered why Fleischer was not yelling cut and was so relieved when he found out after it finally cut that she was doing some pretty impressive acting for that sequence. A swarm of 1.6 million sterile male flies they were ordered from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, used for this scene where John Harkins, who is playing the Amityville Homes real estate agent, he's going to be covered with them, at least covered to death, essentially. Initially, they hoped that the, this volume of flies would result in, incidentally, some landing on the actor by happenstance. Harkins wore a second skin-like mask. It was going to have some dead flies already glued to it, while everybody else in the room was covered with gauze netting or respirator masks to make sure that the flies didn't get in their nostrils or their mouths. It didn't work, though, the way that they thought, so they adhered living flies, along with the dead ones, to the mask. It still looked unconvincing, so they then smeared Harkins' face and body with this putrid smelling female fly sex hormone to try to attract these male flies. The flies still did not do everything that they expected, so they crafted now a dummy head of Harkins. They hollowed it out from the back, and they attached a vacuum tube so that they could blow the flies out of his mouth, and they would play the footage in reverse to make it appear as if the flies were actually going into his mouth and his nose and down his throat. Now, one of the animal wranglers in this film, a man named Miguel Grisa, he had gotten a bit too confident in his ability to handle the venomous cobras they were going to use for one particular scene. One of them struck him in the hand. That scene involved the seance scam artists from the beginning of the film, Harold and Emma Caswell. They were going to return to the basement to pick up their audio equipment. And that's when one of the microphones was going to be shown as turning into a snake, a cobra, coiling around Harold Caswell's leg, and it would trip him into the pit of hell, the hole in the basement. The cobra, though, remained clamped on Miguel's hand as his partner, his brother Humberto. He implored him to remove that cobra very carefully without breaking either one of its fangs, because that would probably be fatal. They wouldn't be able to get the medical assistance they need to get both the venom and the fang out. Miguel painfully extricated that cobra, and he returned the snake back into its sack. While he started sucking out the venom from the wound, he immediately received treatment from the doctor that was on hand, and 
he was out for about two days, very ill. To add insult to injury, this scene was not used in the final cut. Unlike some of the crew and their calamities here, the cast did reportedly find the production to be quite enjoyable. It was like a working vacation of a sort. The more adult members of the cast, they quickly bonded. They frequently enjoyed going out. They started partying. They started socializing in Mexico City together. They became pretty good friends during this shoot. Many of the cast retained fond memories of Mexico City and of enjoying each other's company. They were fond of the memory, but few are very fond of having this film in their filmography, though. Very few of them choose to discuss the film when it comes up in interviews today. Some remarked after seeing the film that a lot of the script's cleverness, the emotion that they saw in it, did not really translate to the screen. It seemed much more gimmicky and derivative of Poltergeist in the end. Not everything was fun and games, though, for the Mexico shoot. Just before the production began, some of the cast and the crew, they visited the Teotihuacan pyramids outside of Mexico City. They climbed up the multitudinous steep steps to get to the top of those pyramids. Candy Clark, as fit as she thought she was, she started experiencing severe cramps in her thighs, and her legs started to lock up, and she needed assistance in returning back down. She was so sore on the first day of the shoot, she was relieved to find out that they were going to start the shoot with the seance sequence, because that's where she was going to be seated for nearly the entire sequence. Dysentery was also common among cast and crew. Some of them would get it several times through the shoot, enough to have a doctor always on call. That doctor was very, very busy with the people getting sick here. They also experienced a couple of unnerving earthquakes during their time there. Howard Blake, he composed the score. He had worked with Dino before on Flash Gordon. That often gets overlooked because of the Queen songs in Flash Gordon, but he did the more traditional scoring within that film. He works here again with... De Laurentiis with this composition that, you know, is actually really good. It's maybe too good for this kind of vapid film. I really wish it was chosen for a much more suspenseful and interesting film. Blake does take a very classical approach here. This could have been a score from any number of horror films from the 1950s or 60s. It really is kind of Hitchcockian, a little bit like Bernard Herrmann-esque in its way. When Fleischer took a look at the first cut of his film, he was unhappy with it. He felt it was too slack so he started doing some trimming. He wanted to tighten this film up as much as he could. He chopped out actually about 25 minutes of that first cut. However, he was told that what he did produce was too short for TV screening. So he needed to hold on to that first cut because they were going to show that on TV screenings. There was an emotional scene of Susan Baxter's funeral. She was a main victim in this film. She was also a victim of the editing process employed here. She was cut out at least toward the end of this film, as well as more time with the central demon that was chopped out. He now just pops up for a jump scare and then takes Elliot West down with him to the pit of hell before the house seemingly randomly explodes. The post-production delays pushed the theatrical release date to November 18th, 1983, so that took it out of that all-important Halloween period. A novelization of the film, that actually was done. You would think that a 3D movie wouldn't have a novelization necessarily, but it was done, and it was called Amityville 3D. It was written by Gordon McGill, and, but mystifyingly, it hit bookstores six months after the film was already gone completely from theaters and from the minds of most people. The 3D effects here, well, they were considered pretty shoddy, even for its era by moviegoers. It was very dark. A lot of people complained about the darkness of the film when it was displayed in theaters. There were plenty of objects that do come at the camera. You see a Frisbee. You see all of these flies. There was a giant lead pipe through a window. There was a stuffed swordfish. That's one of the more famous kind of absurd things that jump out at you 
on the screen. Unfortunately, the process of the 3D did degrade the quality of the overall film and it made it a lot blurrier around the edges. The lighting is too distracting, especially when you watch this in a 2D format. There's only so much they can do to make it look good. Despite the 3D gimmick here, the rush to capitalize on the franchise name, Amityville 3D fell out of theaters very quickly within three weeks. It only earned about half of the take of its predecessor, which was disappointing in and of itself. It only earned $6.3 million in U.S. theaters. Audiences, really, they had grown tired of the 3D process by this point, especially since a lot of those 3D films were among the worst films of the prior two years. This would also be the final wide-release 3D feature in theaters in the early 1980s, and unfortunately, unlike the first two films, Amityville 3D is completely divorced from any pretense that what we're witnessing is something that actually happened, at least anecdotally. There really just is not anything in and of itself that's terrifying about housefly attacks or elevators run amok, blasts of cold air. Fleischer, though, blamed the marketing itself for the failure of Amityville 3D. He thought this should be a bigger hit. He said that it was barely advertised. And what advertisements they did do made the film look like it was embarrassingly cheap. He felt it was a much better production than that. As far as what I think, well, Amityville 3D, I will say, it's not as bad as many other 1980s 3D films. In fact, it's probably, of the ones that I've seen at least, one of the better efforts to try to do something. But it also doesn't really strive to be a truly good film independent of that 3D gimmick, despite a classier approach here. I think the biggest knock on Amityville 3D is that it is pretty dull comparatively to other horror movies of its era, and it's very derivative in comparison, like I said, to Poltergeist. It's 3D effects. They were deemed a bust. A lot of complaints. It's too dark to see. It's still too dark to see when you watch it in 2D, although it is better, but what could be seen still looks substandard, at least compared to other films of its era that didn't have the 3D kind of ruining the filming. The staging of the 3D shots, they really look awkward when you view it in a 2D format, which most people who are watching this today, as well as over the years, most people have watched it on TV or on home video. Very few people see it in the theaters. So it does have an alternate title, as I mentioned, of Amityville the Demon, so further causing a lot of confusion among the public as to what the actual name is of this film and how it ties in. Now, all of these technical problems aside, I think the dialogue is also too elementary the motivations of the characters too implausible to make any of what we're seeing compelling. Many aspects of the scares seem totally contrived or outright nonsensical. Again, as with the other films, the house, for some reason, is not the only thing that is cursed. Whatever spirits lie within the house also decide to hitch along for the ride, usually in the form of a fly that appears out in public places to one of the characters buzzing around their face away from the home. I think in one of the silliest scenes I can think of in this film, we see John Baxter. He's either soaring all the way to the top or plummeting to the bottom floor of a building in a wild elevator ride after visiting his literary agent's office building. And despite nearly dying in that sequence from this elevator run amok, when Baxter's photographer colleague from Reveal, Melanie, is spooked by a blast of cold that she felt within the house, he asks her why this odd event happened to her but not to him, completely forgetting that he nearly was killed in this freak accident just the day before, had no discernible explanation. It could not have been imagined there were other people that knew that he was trapped in this elevator that was soaring or plummeting almost to his doom. 
There's been no shortage of Amityville films after this over the years. They're still making them today, in fact. Amityville 3D happened to be the last theatrically released effort among all of those, like almost two dozen of them, except for the 2005 remake of the 1979 film that came out with Ryan Reynolds, which was not worth really going out to see either. So for all intents and purposes, Amityville's cachet as a property kind of ended here as far as theatrical releases, even though the name Amityville still denotes a haunted house for many people that are looking for such fare, and that's why it continues to be used to this day. And it's free to use. There is a town called Amityville. As long as they don't tie it to the original films, if they don't have rights, they can continue calling it that. So two stars out of four is what I give Amityville 3D. Two stars out of four means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being something that I could recommend to most people. And that which is lacking here is any kind of effort to make it unique or interesting beyond the 3D gimmick. I think if you watch it in its 3D format, maybe you'll get more mileage out of it because it was kind of a, a novelty film. It was intended to be viewed in such a fashion on its own. It's stuff you've seen before and seen done better, especially if you've watched Poltergeist. And that's why I can only give Amityville 3D two stars out of four. Well, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you feel about this, the Amityville horror is not going to die here because... Coming up next, I'm going to be reviewing Amityville Horror, The Evil Escapes, sometimes called Amityville 4, depending on the video release. But Amityville Horror has the novelty of actually tying in somewhat with the original 1979 film. Sanders Stern, who did the original screenplay, he also does the screenplay for this one, as well as John G. Jones, who worked with the Lutzes to write The Amityville Horror Part 2, the book that they did that was released in 1982 that covers a lot of the material that you're going to see in this film as well as the next film that follows this one. So returning the film franchise, as it were, back to that first film, somewhat anyway, this was a made-for-TV movie that was released in 1989. So if you have the chance to check out Amityville Horror, The Evil Escapes, Patty Duke and Jane Wyatt are in that film. So some interesting things here. Will it be better than the De Laurentiis productions? Well, that awaits to be seen. This will be a first-time watch for me, so check it out if you can. Amityville Horror, The Evil Escapes. For the next episode of Around the World in 80s Movies, if you have your own thoughts on the Amityville series or Amityville 3D specifically, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website, quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are all there, too. If you want to get in touch, any of those ways are adequate, but I do think email is the best if you want to shoot a word to me of how you feel about the show but otherwise until next time thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies (laughs) 